This episode is different than every other episode. Why? Well, for starters, we had the one, the only, David Bashevkin. You may know him from his writings in Mishpacha. You may know him from Twitter. You may just know him. He is an interesting character. We brought him on to discuss money. He is super transparent. I laughed. I enjoyed. I learned a thing or two or a lot. He's brilliant. I don't want to give too much away. Without further ado, the great David Bashevkin. Being a Jew? Awesome. Managing personal finances? Not so awesome. Welcome to Kosher Money. Welcome back to Kosher Money, where we talk about money. Sitting here with David Bashevkin, originally from Lawrence? Lawrence, New York, born and raised. And now in Teaneck, New Jersey? Teaneck, New Jersey. How much money do you make? <laughs> I, I, I was, I'm supposed to bring my W-2s, right? Right. I'm or 1099s. Bring, I don't know. We can get into that K-1s. later on. People are asking, David Bashevkin, you're bringing him on to talk money. Why? I think that when it comes to talking about money, very often the Jewish community does a huge disservice to itself where we create a very Gevir-centric culture where we talk about people who make a great deal of money. And I think I talk about this a ton with my students. I am a big, big, big proponent of financial education, particularly in the yeshiva years, particularly in the early 20s. You're coming back from seminary, yeshiva, educate yourself. And I don't make a great deal of money. I think I probably make more money than people would guess. And I'm very careful with my money. I invest it very carefully. And I... I'm just a big believer in having grown up in a culture in the five towns, and I know I think that can warp in many ways people's sense and relationship with a normal, healthy relationship with money. Um, I, I really think this is an important topic to talk about. So you speak about yeshivas. We've done a dozen or so episodes right now. It's not something, our guests are saying, it's not something that yeshivas and schools are teaching students. It's more on the parents to, to educate financial literacy. Is that where you're going with that comment when you see that the Jewish community is doing a d- disservice to itself? Granted, we, we focus on the Gvirim, but you talk to any 20-year-old, they're not equipped to get married on a financial, in, in, in a financial world where there's home buying, there's investing, there's spending, there's expenses, there's credit, there's debits, there's credit scores. They don't know anything about that in the yeshivas and the seminaries and the schools, or most of them are not teaching that to these students. I think it's actually a little bit worse than that, meaning, and I, again, I love my time and my uh, experience growing up here. I love my time in yeshiva. I love the five towns. I love everything that I grew up with. However, I think the problem is is much, much worse than that, where aside from a total lack of financial education, we are providing a poor education in other ways. Number one, um, just the very culture I think that people grow up in, depending on what community, but particularly when me growing up here, I think a lot of people don't know what it means to grow up with like a regular means. And they, they, they don't even know what that world is. And they also get really, um, I think, dangerous mixed messaging from yeshivas where they do their financial conversations that they have are decrying materialism. But at the very same breath, uh, if you open up 
And people have made this point, but you open up our magazines, you open up yeshiva dinners, you open up everything from the very places that are decrying materialism. I think that you're seeing a great deal of emphasis that what it means to be a well-functioning Hamish Geschmack Jew is to have a lot of money. And I certainly have recognized that I have been kind of like tainted with that. And it took a lot for me to, I, I very deliberately chose a community. One of the most important factors for me was economic diversity. I need a place where there are people with very different means in a very obvious way. And I picked a very particular set of Teaneck. And what I'm most proud of is the relationships that I have, the friendships that I have are economically diverse. And I'm afraid that we're raising a new generation of young from Jews, people in their early 20s, who have no economic diversity. It's almost like we've created like two worlds where like people who like they're not so wealthy they don't have a lot so so they move to communities x y and z and this community everybody needs to have a lot a lot a lot to even survive and that's a scary thing when anything related to yiddishkeit to religion to your commitments to hakadosh baruch Hu, start to get filtered through an economic filter it it shapes the very contours of what it means to be a from Jew, that is the most terrifying problem in my mind of the future of Yiddishkeit in America. So what's the answer? That's a great question. I think the answer, number one, is, and I I can give a shout out to to Rabbi Bender on this, but I I really think it's something that the Hasidic community has championed with, you know, every community has its own financial struggles, but something that I love about the Hasidic community is giving opportunity and showing that you can make a living with blue-collar work. I think uh, people who go into uh, HVAC, electricians, all the stuff, what Rabbi Bender set up with the Rabenstein Center, and like saying, this is normal. People go into this, and they make a living, and they can actually do quite well, that not everybody has to go into the same four fields of finance that you see the people who made it really, 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 really big. So everybody wants to go into these fields, and you could end up getting, you lose your shirt in that. Like, you don't really have a profession, and you take risks that you simply cannot afford to make. Um, I think that's one major, major factor. I also think um, magazines, yeshivas, all of our media need to do a better job of highlighting the average Jew and what that is like. I think we need – I am – again, I don't want to like overstate it. I am terrified by Gavir culture. It was one of my early, early top fives that I wrote for Mishpacha magazine, like top, top, five, top five ways to tell if you're a Gavir. And like, there's a way that we treat them differently. There's a way that their homes are different. There's a way that like we're afraid to like. They're always right. They're always like, oh, that's my, oh, that's such a good idea. That's so, and we turn them into celebrities. Mm-hmm. It's terrible. And I think that this is very recent. This is the last twenty years that like this. You you have kids in their twenties who I don't know. I'm nervous that can they name more Gadolim or Gavirim or or even worse, have our Gavirim become our Gadolim. It's very scary. And when you actually talk to a lot of these people, they're such good, decent people. I'm not demonizing them, God forbid. Mm-hmm. But this culture of like, who do you want to grow up to be? People want to grow up to be very wealthy Balabatim. And I think that that's one scary, scary thing. We're also assuming when we look at people's homes and the cars they drive that they are rolling in it but we've learned over these episodes that there is a lot of debt out there, right? Just because you see someone living in a home in a particular zip code and they look like they're living a lavish lifestyle, it's not to say that they aren't struggling financially, which just 
compounds the issue that you're describing, where people are striving for, you know, seeing that mixed messaging of of wealth and 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 living it up, but. So many of the people that you think are making it aren't even making it because they're caught up with the keeping up with the cones. They're not necessarily; they don't have the income streams to support a lifestyle that you think they have. I, I think that issue goes back to economic diversity, and I think that's a particular issue when you grow up in these like major Jewish communities. I, I think if you're in a community where everybody has a certain level of means and you don't know and you don't have close relationships with people who could be open about struggling, and the, it's going to compound and it's going to be much, much worse. But I think that we have created kind of like a negative feedback loop when it comes to uh, some of these financial issues. I want to give a shout out. I think a lot of finances boils down to – some very simple principles, all of which can be found. I'm sure you've mentioned it before. There's a book called The Index Card, um, which it was literally written by a finance professional who said everything you need to know about finance, you could basically boil down to an index card. And he took an, in, an actual index card. Like I don't know it by heart, but took an actual index card. Then he wrote a book on like these five principles. It's like a super short book, like 100 pages, very easy to read. We'll put it in the show notes for people. Please do. And and what it tells you is like here are the basic financial principles of financial literacy. And I think that when kids grow up, the, even the notion of debt – I mean debt could be wonderful. I, I'm, I'm in debt through mortgages and learning how debt and leverage and all of these things work that are able to give you new opportunities, but opportunities to hopefully build wealth for yourself and right. rather than – you know this house of cards that I think people look for a certain look, and and this is my I, I I do spend a lot of money on certain things. You just have to be like disciplined about what makes sense. What is actually going to make you happy that you spend money on? I think people spend money on things that do not make them happy. It's just you you're you're kind of just pouring water into this jug that has a hole in it because you see everybody else is filling up the jug, but it, it pours right out, and the happiness doesn't stay with you. So you have to figure out. What could you spend money on that's actually going to deliver a return on your emotional satisfaction? People aren't thinking this deeply, right? They have some sort of salary, a paycheck comes in, they got to pay their mortgage, their tuition. No one ever stops to think at a red light, hey, is this making me happy? Am I a better person because I'm spending my money this way versus that way? Unless it hits you in the head, no one ever will stop to think, Am I spending my money wisely? Well, I think they do the inverse where it hits them on the head where why am I so unhappy? I think at red lights, uh-huh. people are thinking about like, why am I so miserable? I have a family. Kind of horror, hopefully. Everybody's healthy, gesund. And, you know, you have a place to live. You have kids. And like people have this gnawing feeling. I am a member of a community. I'm a member of a show. Why am I still so miserable? What is going on in my life that I have this added pressure? Why do I feel like I'm walking around with a knapsack that weighs 110 pounds wherever I go? And I think if you are thoughtful instead of, again, not, when people are happy, they're not thinking about anything else. But when, when you have those thoughts hit you, I think it's time to reallocate your portfolio of investments, not your stocks, but like, what are you, what are you giving your attention 
and your focus and your time to that you might need to realign your portfolio. Maybe you do need a new community. But I think when people are walking around day to day and everything else is gesund and they still feel miserable, they have to start asking those questions and make they need to realign something. And I've had those moments in my own life. And like you have to something is not working out. You're working to the bone or you are spending money on things that are not giving you the return of satisfaction that actually makes sense. And you pro- you very likely have an unhealthy relationship, not with money, but like what money is actually giving you an opportunity for. So practically speaking, someone who's listening to this, they're sitting by a red light. They feel some sort of unhappiness or tension or stress related to their job. They're working to the bone or they're not spending the way they, they need to be. What practically can they do to realign that portfolio? It it makes sense. The concept makes sense. But what did you do? You said there were instances in your life where you felt that maybe you were unhappy with with how you were perceiving your lot, even though you had... And I've spoken to people. They've said, "Um, Kanai Nahara, I have five kids. um, They're all healthy. I have a great salary. But that level of satisfaction that you would think would be there isn't necessarily there. What can they do to rejigger their their thinking and actually find satisfaction and the happiness with their lot i think the first thing is being able to confront and you almost like you need to get more miserable before you're able to get happy is like confronting and really acknowledging the fact something is misaligned something is off in my life and that could that can be a stretch that could be really scary that's a really scary period i think the next thing is really taking an accounting of the things that make me happy, when am I most at peace, when am I most calm. And I know for myself, I cut certain things out of my life. I cut out fancy vacations. I realized they were doing very little for me. Almost nothing. They almost like stressed me out more because mm-hmm. like you have these like massive expectations. This is going to be the best four days of my. Whenever I go into anything and there's these expectations, like now you have to be happy and relaxed starting now, like right away, I <laughs> freeze up. I, I cut it out of my life. I found super cheap ways to take vacation. I like a change of scenery. I don't need a lot. I'm very low maintenance when it comes to that. And I took a, and I also almost completely cut out going out to eat. You realize you go out to eat, you could spend $150 and you could do that, I don't know, 10 times a year, 20 times a year. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a boatload of money. I took all of the money, all of the money that I spend on going out to eat and I invested it into my Shabbos meals. And we, on Shabbos, we, I don't think we spend like lavishly, always have a nice bottle of wine. We go to grow and behold steaks. We like make shot. We transform Shabbos and turn it into a vacation. And for me, and we talk about, and we use that language, like we're going on vacation to Shabbos. And I cut out things to make Shabbos. Like I don't like, I don't like eating at these like big, massive couple meals. I don't really like, I don't get that much out of it. I love having people over. I hate being on somebody else's territory. It's making me kind of miserable. Uh, everybody does it. Okay, we don't do it. That's okay. Right. That's okay. And I, just, I started cutting out very basic things in my life. I don't accept meals that I don't like. I have 52 Shabbos in a year. I make each one count. Each one's a vacation. So the things that like 
tick me off or that I find frustrating or like I'm like exhausted halfway through Shabbos because I just sat through a four and a half hour meal talking about what kind of blinds they just got. Like, Gamarnu, <laughs> I'm finished. I'm finished. So I, 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 cu- I cut stuff, not in a mean way. I mean, right. sometimes it's mean where I'm like looking around and be like, can we bench? Like, <laughs> I think it's time. But, but other times, like I, I'm ready to cut. It's not just... Uh, investments of money it's also like investments of like relationships or like I'll scale back from certain relationships it's like this is not give this is not giving me a return on my satisfaction and I started to be much more disciplined in how I spend my time and particularly how I spend my Shabbases. I think it's an untapped resource in our community where communal pressures have us use our Shabbos time in a very particular way and I think we can regain control of that where it really becomes this spiritual refresher that allows you to have the satisfaction and joy of what it means to be a part of a Jewish community in ways that I think we're being told how we're supposed to be spending that time. Right. When it comes to vacation, you're not saying people shouldn't take vacation. It's that you don't have to spend lavishly to get the energy reboost that you're looking for. Yeah. And I, I actually grew up that way. My parents, I think not because... I grew up in a home, again, my father was a doctor, but, and thank God, I mean, it was really a case study in how different families' relationship with wealth is, where we were always able to pay for, like, the, what you call the basic necessity of Jewish life, tuition, and, and, you know, contribute to the shul and all this, but because of different factors, he didn't have a private practice early in his career, it felt tight, which is which is bananas crazy to grow up and in the home of a very successful doctor and feel like finances were tight. Fifty mm-hmm. percent of that is the personality and your relationship to money. Fifty percent of that is it costs a lot to be to be Jewish. But I did grow up in a home where we did not uh, take big fancy vacations. We didn't have to jump on airplanes. We should drive up. We'd go to New Hampshire. We'd go to like more low key, and and it was so enjoyable. We loved it. It created the most unbelievable memories. And if you took a vacation that costs you, I don't know, 70% less than you would charge getting everybody in an airplane, you realize the the long-term payoff on your happiness, it's not 70% less. If Mm -hmm. anything, it might be 70% more. Let me give a shout-out to a second book. Go ahead. Really, really important. Ten, um, no, I'm sorry, Stumbling Upon Happiness. Stumbling Upon Happiness is written by a psychologist, which really analyzes what are the events and experiences that actually make you happier. And it's sometimes very, we play games with ourselves of what we think makes us happier, because in the moment, it's very hard to acknowledge, like, right now I am happy. Is this the feeling? Is that going to change my overall wellness in a year from now, mm-hmm. in three years from now? What are the components that really give you that mental health and sense of satisfaction with your life? And this is what the book is all about. It's much trickier than people think to figure yourself out of what are the components to building a happy life. So there are things that in, in real time will make you happy, and then there are things where it's almost like a happiness investment. Exactly. you're happy happy, but you'll also be happy or even happier in three months from now because of what you're doing now. So that's uh, an interesting take on it. Exactly. Meaning you can't just judge by your real-time happiness. Otherwise, people honestly would never build families, would never do anything strenuous. Like they, 
there would be no productivity in the world because, like, real, oh, this is stressful. Like, bring my kids to the park. Like, please, God, no. Right. Like, that will knock me out for three weeks. But that you can't just use real-time happiness assessment to figure out what your long-term satisfaction is going to be. And it's the same with money, meaning a lot of times people will get an investment. You'll make X amount of dollars, blah, 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 in six months, and we'll give you back. You give us 10000 and we'll give you back 50000 in six months from now. Like, wow, that'll make a gazillion dollars. And people are always in for these very huge returns over a short period of time. They want to get rich right away. Mm-hmm. And I think, like, I'm a big believer in indexing and very basic ETFs. Put money away and you don't look at it for a very long time. You could make it build an extraordinary amount of wealth. When the economy collapses, that's a good time to look at your portfolio. Maybe now I should be putting in money right. on the coronavirus, right? Not, not all these, like, I think people get caught up with trends not just when it comes to making money, but when it comes to finding happiness, where they think that whatever the in the analogy of like you're looking for the newest cryptocurrency, this and that, and I'm not knocking crypto or anything, but they're looking for these like very quick fixes. I'm going to become that gazillionaire very quickly. That's what we do with like night out with the boys. We're renting out all of the restaurant. Everybody's coming out. Everybody gets a bottle of wine. Everybody gets this. And we want these like big major events that are going to contribute to our happiness. And I think very often in the long term, uh, we are both not as wealthy as we should be because we invested in you know more or less an Irish kite. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're not as happy as we should be because of the way we invested our money and the return that we got was also very specious, very superficial. And now we're like, oh, now I'm miserable. Why am I miserable? I just spent $1,000 for the night out with the guys or whatever it was. Right. And it didn't contribute to anything. Is this something you think about a lot or just in the course of life these thoughts have come to you? Have you actively sat down and said, hey, what can I do to um, create more happiness as it relates to money, as it relates to family? Um, Or is this something that as you go through life and as you get older, these thoughts are piling into you? Um, I think about money, unfortunately, constantly. That is a personality uh, trait that I inherited uh, from many generations of Bishefkins. We are nervous Nellies. We are anxious creatures. Uh, I think about money. I I wish I thought about it less. I don't beat myself up for thinking about it. Uh, But I realize that given my personality and given the line of work that I am in, especially because there's a lot more instability, I think in all careers now, contemporary life, there's a lot more instability. Um, I want to make sure that I'm able to set myself up. And at a certain point, yes, I started thinking about what are the things that actually return happiness to me. And anybody who's ever tried to make plans with me mm-hmm. knows that like, I am – I mean I get accused of being a flake. I just don't say yes to a lot of things because I'm like that's not going to be a joyful evening for me. Right. I'm not interested in this night you have planned. I don't think it's going to be fun. And sometimes I say yes right away. I'm like, oh, that that will really be a great return on, on happiness. And I'm very careful about this stuff. So the nervous Nelly, the anxiousness relating to money, are you saying that if you – found out you had a rich uncle that passed away at the age of 120 and gave you $30 million, would you be less anxious? Would you be less nervous as it relates to money? 
yes, but I would be anxious about something else. Meaning, I'm an anxious person. Okay. I would, f- my brain would find something to fixate on at every point in my but life. But money related? Would you? Would no, you say not money related? Okay, I'd find okay. something else. I, I, I generally believe that if I had thirty million dollars, I would not be anxious about money, and I would one hundred percent find something <laughs> else to be anxious about. I don't think it would be keeping up with anybody else. Right. I don't. I don't really need all that of a lavish lifestyle. I. The clothes that I buy, I, I buy very nice clothes, but I, I'm very deliberate. I buy, I find one or two shirts that work from a company, and I just buy twenty of the same one. I dress like which that. one? Charles Turret. I. It's a great question. It's a great question. And, and honestly, if you bring this up, the rest of the interview is just going to be about <laughs> shirt, shirt companies. I, I am, I am a Charles Turwit, um, and I go back and forth with Twillery. Obviously, shout out to sure. my friends at Twillery. I find the cuts of Twillery shirts are not as they don't have as much Rachmanus sensitivity and empathy to the contemporary Jewish dad body that I have slowly uh, morphed <laughs> the, into. The more for the slim fit. It's it's aspirational. <laughs> Twillery is aspirational. When I'm feeling fit and I feel like wow, like I'm feeling good, like right yeah. after Pesach, like I don't even open up the Twillery. I don't want to know what's on it's sale. It's a Charles Turret. Uh, yeah, gives you a little funny. bit more compassion around the waist. <laughs> um, I'm wearing a Twillery shirt, but yeah, I toggle between the two as well. When it comes to making money, how do you make money? What, what does David Bashev can do on a day-to-day basis? I, I actually have many jobs, which is difficult and is something that I don't necessarily recommend to everybody. I, I, I think in a lot of ways. I, I remember a friend of mine uh, told me there are like something called East Coast versus West Coast jobs. East Coast jobs is like corporate where you have one job, all of your focus, and you just climb the rungs and the ladder for your entire career, as opposed to the West Coast, which is more like Hollywood. You have like these projects that you're doing something for two years together. You create a movie. When the movie's over, then you find another thing to do. So there's a lot more risk in that. It's much more entrepreneurial. Um, I primarily work at NCSY. I'm the director of education. And uh, I do stuff with NCSY, including we have uh, a new uh, media company, 1840. I work at Yeshiva University, where I am a professor of Jewish values, and I and I write a great deal. And I've published uh, published books. I write for Mishpacha Magazine many years ago, and I write for Tablet. So I do a lot of stuff, and it you know I I do public speaking, and I'm just very careful with how the money I make gets saved and invested. And I always tell my students, the, the best asset that you have is time. And take advantage of that as a young investor. Don't go for something ridiculous. Go for something that if you're not going to look at it for 10 years. I started investing when I was 23. My Zadie, who was an investor for a great deal of his career, taught me how to open up an Ameritrade account. I bought, um, I think, SPY. I think. Yes, yes. That's not, the- not 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 as I, I bought SPLV the oh, SP, okay. the ETF on the S and P low volatility index and I was able to make down payments for my house without getting help and I really put them again I got married much later right but uh, how old were you when you got married I was twenty nine okay I'm opening up my stock chat so I could so I'm a big believer I think people are not transparent enough in what they invest in and how they make money. Uh, which I think hurt ends up hurting everybody, sure, because nobody knows what's happening, and everybody's striving for something which may not, as you mentioned before, even exist. What what app do you use to uh, invest? I use Ameritrade okay. for my personal. I have 
multiple investment accounts. I have a 403B from the OU. I have from YU. I have a personal stock account. And then I have, let's say, like more private um, deals that I've contributed money into that give me kind of like a steady return. What I basically do is I've gone into, you know, a handful of real estate deals, which you get cash from quarterly during Corona was a little bumpier. Mm -hmm. And I take the cash from those deals and I put it into my personal stock account. I have it grow over, you know, five year, 10 year period. And then I will take money out from that and put it back into real estate and just get more streams of passive income. So I have a ton of questions. How does someone get started in that? They have additional liquidity that they want to allocate towards something. They want to put it into real estate. They don't have any real estate background. They'd like to speak to someone who can take that money and invest it wisely. Where do they start? I would not start with real estate. I have almost everything I know about finances. I learned from a roommate who I had who came from an extraordinarily wealthy family who was one of the healthiest and smartest people in finance that I've ever met. I'll just tell you his first name is Moishi. And, and what's his last name? <laughs> He's, uh, he's well-known, and those who know me know exactly who he is. But he, he really – we used to go on these long car rides together, where he, and he was younger than me. But he grew up with a great deal of responsibility. He knew what the financial world was actually like. And he was ve very conservative, very smart, very sharp. I always remember something. I quote him about this constantly. We were one time at a Shabbos meal. And somebody asked him, like, point blank, like, what is it like growing up in a wealthy family? Like, what does it give you? Like, what is all the wealth? Like, he grew extraordinarily wealthy. Like, well, what did it give you? And he gave a one-word answer, which is one of the smartest answers I ever heard. He said, options. Options. I have more options than other people. That's it. I don't know that my choices are better. I don't know that I'm happier. I have more options. You have one way to get on vacation. You can just afford a car. You can just, I don't know. I could take a helicopter. I could take a car. I could take a private jet. I, could, I have 20 options for anything I want to do. You have one restaurant that you could afford to eat at. I have 50 restaurants. Okay. You're left with the same indecision and difficulties in figuring out what's going to make you happy, whether you have more options or one options. It may be even more difficult with more options. Right. But. One of the things that he told me when I was younger, and this is what you need to know, is, is the, the importance of options in figuring out money. When you lock up money in a real estate deal, very often, you, not very often, you're losing a great deal of liquidity. Mm -hmm. So you're not able to just you say, here's $50,000 invested in an apartment, and then you need the money in uh, six months from now. I didn't see that coming. Right. Could I have the money back? It's gone. That's why the financial markets provide that liquidity. So all of my early investing... Uh, in my early 20s was in the stock market and things that I did not have to look at. And I specifically invest my money after financial meltdowns. I invested after the, that's when I started after mm -hmm. 2008, after the Great Recession. And I poured money into the market. I did it again with the corona meltdown, mm -hmm. those are the moments that I choose. When I see it just, it's crashing because of some external fear and this and that. Um, that's when I really try to strike, and that's when you're able to build capital. The, the easiest way to build is not the great stock tips, is not figuring out the company. You're not going to beat the experts. Mm -hmm. It is using time. Your time horizon is your best investing asset, and that's what I use constantly. When you invested during those financial meltdowns, were you doing that yourself, or you have an in investment advisor, someone that's telling you where to put it um, 
Or are you just sitting in the basement? Your wife's like, come upstairs. You're like, hold on. SPLV, typing it in. Click, bye, bye. And you're doing it all yourself. Great question. I, for a host of reasons, do not use a financial advisor. I really take radical ownership over my finances. I have two or three friends who I speak to. One, um, he has a, a actually a stock chat, which is usually where you get the worst ideas, but he is a very seasoned conservative private investor. His name is Taki. Um, you don't have to say his last name. We'll find him. Yeah, you'll, 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 <laughs> you'll find him. He's, he's extraordinarily brilliant, and he's the kind of investor that I appreciate. You know, that Warren Buffett value investor really understands, listens to the earnings calls. Any tip – he doesn't give me tips. I don't believe in tips, but he'll tell me – this is a company worth looking at. This is a solid financials and learning how to read the basics of financials. This is healthy. This is honestly, I got up in, in yeshiva. This is a Ben Torah understands finance, financial. You, it, it's not yeshivish. It's not stark. It's not from to be totally clueless about the financial world. Mm-hmm. There, there's a letter from the Chazonish that I, that I love and I quote constantly where he gives six hanhagas for B'nai Torah. It's worth going through all six of them because I always think about what's the letter that the Chazonish, so to speak, would write in 2021 to contemporary mm. B'nai and B'nos Torah. Well, what would he tell them? And one of the things on that thing is the Chazonish writes, he says, do not ever borrow money, even with witnesses, don't borrow money. Well, what's the Chazonish saying? You shouldn't take out debt to, to buy your house. I think the Chazonish was telling a Ben Torah is somebody who has financial independence and maturity, where you're not going around and you don't have to just day-to-day collect your money. That A Ben Torah has a financial independence and freedom. And I, I really look at it. He, he only lists six, six things on there. And one of them has to do with finances and not being dependent on others and having to go around. That really, that, that hit me. That hit mm-hmm. me in a very real way. The, the first one happens to be not to fress out on food and fancy restaurants, where he calls Achilles Tainug the Aviavos Hatuma, just like you know, comes synonymous having a good time. It's just like stuffing your face. I also like moved away from that. Mm. Uh, but I think number four, number three on that list is not borrowing money excessively. And he, he says not borrow money at all. I don't think he's talking about a mortgage. I don't right. think he's talking about debt in That's that way. good debt, right? Yeah. I think he's talking about bad debt, living credit card to credit card. Mm-hmm. This is not the way that B'nai Torah should have to live. Mm-hmm. Taki's chat is that a WhatsApp chat? Where where does that it, where does that go question. down? It was a WhatsApp chat. He moved it to iMessage because of his deep allegiance to Apple, which he has been investing in for a very very long time. So on a day to day basis or week to week, there are people are asking him questions. You can't get into this group. No, but not. yeah, I know. But I, I want to understand what I'm not going to be able to get into. I well, I act in a very peculiar way in this group. Number one is I share all of my finance, like anything. Anytime I buy a stock, I will say what was my cost basis, meaning what was the average amount that I paid because I'll right. buy over. I diversify not just the companies that I buy, but when I buy them. You diversify not just what you invest in, but when you invest. So I will always share my cost basis, how many shares. I am very transparent with everything. And he I've come to him at different points when I have, I've built up from, you know, different points of income, savings, say, I have X amount of money. Usually I invest in an average in my portfolio, I'll put in like five thousand dollars per company. That's usually the minimum at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll say, well, what should I be looking at now? What what do you think is undervalued, underpriced? And he's given me, telling me to look at companies where my returns have been astronomical. And 
he moved it to iMessage, and most of it is kibitzing and what you would think. You put a bunch of Jews together for stock tips is mostly Narish. I don't listen to what anybody says except him because he was really trained and listened to the greats. He's read every uh, shareholder letter from Warren Buffett, which mm-hmm. have been collected, which is worth reading. Uh, he knows what real – how to spot value in a company, what an undervalued company is. Is a Jew, Taki? Yes. Taki's a Jew. How many people are in this chat? That no one's going to be able to get into? A dozen. A dozen or so. Okay, so Taki's chat that I A lot I of people have into. left. A lot of people have left because he's he doesn't disclose a lot and he's not looking... He's not. He doesn't give you the hot tips. He's right, not giving right. you the something that like this is going to make you a bajillion dollars. And then I don't pay attention to any of that stuff. The stuff that I've invest, invested in is boring. Things that you know about Microsoft, Home Depot, um, Abv. I could tell you what you know. Right. Very very basic. But is any time I've invested is not just the what but the when. My returns are almost always over a hundred percent. He wow. really understands when to put money in, and he understands how market works, and. Um, and I'm, I've learned that on my own. Like they, I think having that basic knowledge of how markets work, so you're not just like staring in the dark, is something that B'nai Torah and B'nos Torah, young adults, should learn because they're all sitting on the biggest asset. They don't have a lot of money, but they time. do have a lot of time. Right. People now talk about time billionaires, people that have billions of second left in their life versus uh, someone in their 80s or 90s that are billionaires in wealth, but they don't have the time. Exactly. And people would much I love rather that. Who switch. says that? Who makes that a time I, billionaire? I saw, it at, uh, I saw it on Twitter. I'll send it over to you. But it's, but it's not just that you have so much time left. You're, the time, just using compounding, reinvesting mm-hmm. your dividends. I like, I like investing on things that are going to give me not just children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. I have, I have dividends now that are they're probably dividends based on my dividends. of dividend, like I have great-great-great-grandchildren. You hold something for, for 15 years already, like you, can, you can build up a position that's going to do something for you. So you spoke about someone who wants to get into investing. You wouldn't recommend real estate right away. So let's assume someone did what you're doing yeah. at the age of 22, 23. They've invested in stocks smartly. And they're 35 years old, and they do have the capital to invest in some sort of real estate. Again, how do you, who do you go to to invest into an apartment complex or real estate? Is it, is there a company that does something like that where you can allocate? And I've seen promoted tweets where someone says, "Hey, get in, get in on this, uh, yeah, get in on this lot, and you can invest in real estate." Which you're never sure what you're getting into. But who do you recommend people turn to? I wouldn't recommend specific names. I would recommend that before you give a dollar to anything, you know how to read and what to spot in just the financial report, how to read just a basic real estate deal. It's not, it's not rocket science. But to understand the basic terminology. That's Yako from the crowd. <laughs> it was getting a little boring. No, okay, okay. Were you on TikTok? No, I went on Instagram. Don't worry, I'll cut it. It's okay. To understand the, I think you need to understand the basic terminology of how you evaluate the returns on a deal. There are different measures for how people evaluate the health of a real estate deal. And really all of business, and this, again, to quote Maishi, comes down to trust. And I think you need to be very skeptical about trust. It's not just because you know this guy, you daven in shul with them. Uh, it needs to be a very deep set of trust, and you need to be able to read the papers that you're signing because you are now buying into a company, so to speak, that is going to own 
uh, piece of property. I think people are too trusting in our community because mm-hmm. they assume, oh, he's you know drives a certain car, has a certain level of wealth, or drops mm-hmm. some terms that I had to Google. They probably also had to Google them themselves before they did it. That oh, I should I should invest with this person. Mm-hmm. And I think that you need to be very discriminating about where you allocate your trust. And even if you do trust someone, you have to be prepared to lose whatever principle you're putting into a deal, right? Yeah, I, I, I say that. I'm, I'm probably not prepared to ever lose. I mean, I, I wouldn't. You have to be prepared in the sense that if you were to lose all of this money, um, it wouldn't financially ruin you. I right. think I would be emotionally pretty bummed out mm-hmm. if I lost all of that. But you know that that I don't. Usually, that's not a major level of risk if you're if you're able to read it carefully. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to be willing to not see the principal for many many years, and I think that actually is a healthy exercise for your financial discipline. Learning financial discipline, just the delayed gratification of nothing fancy, nothing so smart, but you keep it in a wherever it is, whether it's in a stock or a bond or in a uh, real estate portfolio, wherever it is, developing de- developing the discipline that you don't need to see fancy returns immediately. You don't need that gratification of that big pile of cash that you assume most people are getting from. They're, they're not. And doing it very slowly and knowing what you're going to do with the returns, having a plan. I'm going to take my returns either – one of the differences, not to get too technical, stocks, the ones that provide you returns, aside from them going up, they give you some, many stocks give you dividends. And you're able to reinvest those dividends, which allows you to compound. Compounding is the eighth wonder of the financial mm-hmm. world. You make so much money from that. I remember the old story I heard from uh, when I was reading these like young kids' book where a girl um, – goes and makes a deal with a king and and the, says, how do you want me to pay you? She says, I want a penny, but tomorrow I want two pennies and the next day I want four pennies and the next day I want eight pennies and she keeps on doubling it, showing you by the end, by the end after like I think a month or whatever it is, she has all the money in the whole kingdom. Compounding is a way to really accelerate growth. The issue with real estate, when you invest, your money is now tied up in a certain capital, and you get payouts. You can't reinvest that necessarily Mm. and have that compounding. So you need a plan of how you're going to use that money and make sure that you're using compounding to your financial advantage. You spoke about financial transparency, and in our call before this interview a few weeks ago, you you spoke about your interest in our communities and people individually being more transparent. Yes. So we have an audience. I would say an episode without too much advertising gets about 10,000 listens. Holy smokes. What would you like to be transparent about in hopes that when people hear you being transparent, they'll be transparent with their own, um, their own finances in hopes that they become more financially literate, they talk amongst people and it helps break uh, barriers and stigmas and peer pressures. I think transparency is a good thing. We give you the stage to be transparent. What would you like to share with people? I think that, A, when it comes to transparency, I don't know that with like an audience of 10,000, but I share very deliberately with my friends my salary, how much money I make, because I think it gives you a ballpark of like, 
not everybody is a gazillionaire making a ton. And the more that we share, the more you can really figure out, well, what should I be negotiating towards? How much is does make sense for somebody like myself to have or to have in savings? I'm very comfortable to say where all my money is um, and how much I've saved up. I have saved up around, I'm 36. I have saved up around, I think, between six and $700,000, which... I have no idea. You know, if you're not transparent, you have no idea. Is that a normal amount of money? Is that a lot? Is that a little? I think it's 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 a nice nest egg for somebody like myself to have. I already have a home, Kanainahara, and the way that my money is split up is I would say that about four hundred thousand, no, uh, three hundred fifty thousand dollars is in typical IRA type of retirement accounts. There are different kinds. We don't have to go through all sure. of that. About a hundred and. 70 is in a personal stock account, and I would say about $185,000 is split up into kind of real estate uh, holdings that give me passive income. And then I take that money and put it back into the stock. And I don't know. I don't, I'm sure people have much, much more. I'm sure there are people who have much, much less. My belief in transparency is that I think that as a community, we have to stop guarding our financial position as the Kodesh Kadashim, the inner sanctum of our lives, mm. where people will feel more comfortable talking about their marriages, their children, the things that really, really matter. And instead, the one thing that they cannot talk about is money, which is not a Jewish problem. It's an American problem. Mm. In America, we've positioned our financial personality, our financial as like, that's the inner sanctum. That's the most private place. And I think the more that you're able to talk about it, not in a bragging way, and like, this is what I'm trying to figure out. This is what I have. Um, it begins to remind not just the people listening, but you yourself. I need these reminders of like the most important private place of a person's life is not how much money they have. Rabono Shalom. Like, could we stop this already? Mm-hmm. And I think people are so protective because they've convinced themselves that this is the most private thing that I have in my life. Why does it have to be so private? Mm. I mean, again, I always joke whenever somebody new joins the chat, uh, I always start the same way you started. Like, okay, uh, new person, everybody say how much money they have and you know how much they have in savings. It's like um, it's kind of like this hazing. But but I share I share every holding I have, where everything in my stock portfolio. I'm happy to share. And this is what I, this is where I messed up. This is where I lost money. This is where I gained a lot of money. Of course, I'm happy to share that. And I think people are too. Again, that's, it makes it harder to trust people because you don't know who actually is doing well and who actually is investing in smart ways and who's like – they just – I don't know. They're surfing social media or some, uh, I don't know, Reddit stock. Mm-hmm. And you have no idea if they actually – they made a lot of money for like two weeks and then they lost it all. Right. You know, now, they're, now they're at a loss. Like show me. Did you really, do you really have a track record? So it sounds like from the 600, 700 that you've described, most of that money is tied up whether in real estate or IRAs where you'd get some sort of penalty if you needed the liquidity, I would say about 20% of what you've described in terms of the stocks, you can actually liquidate if you needed to. Does that mean... I keep cash also. Oh, okay. So yeah. I keep... How much cash do I keep? Yeah, yeah. I keep about $25,000 in my checking account that I pay bills out of, and I keep about $75,000 in cash 
in a uh, just a regular savings account that I could need, God forbid, if like so I don't have to liquidate. I'm not forced to sell anything because mm. that's really a disaster when you're forced to sell before the time horizon. Right. So I keep about seventy five thousand dollars. That have, again, the world is very unpredictable, and you don't know when you're going to need it. So right. I, I, I've kept that saved up, and I just have it sitting there. And sometimes that gets depleted if you have a project, you have something a bigger purchase. My mm-hmm. wife, you know, we bought a new oven, fancy schmancy, right? You know, not such a fancy oven, but you know, you're able to do that, and you don't have to start liquidating assets. Do you post when you buy that oven into the tacky chat? Say, hey, just made a. I, I announce purchase. all my I announce all my purchases on social media. <laughs> Any major purchase over a thousand dollars goes on social media. So you mentioned your wife. In terms of how you manage your finances and what you invest, is it a conversation you have with her to say, "Hey, I'm going to be allocating twenty thousand dollars into this real estate deal," or is there that trust in which That's, you handle the finances? Leave me out of it. You're doing great. If you need anything, I'm here for you. That's a great question. Well, my wife also works. She works uh, for a big four uh, accounting firm okay. where she does marketing consulting, and she also has a 401k from that, uh, which is absolutely uh, wonderful. Like I'm a big believer in having retirement accounts that can accrue money with you know tax advantages. Uh, no, I don't tell. I mean, I tell her, but uh, she doesn't. She's deliberately not interested in. Uh, the financial details it doesn't really excite her uh, I'll let her know like she'll let me know when we do a big project like during the pandemic we mm-hmm. did a big project where we put in a um, what are those called I'm keeping it's not called a portfolio a patio a patio I forgot the word patio similar similar we'll start with a yeah, P we, we, we put in a patio so my wife we, we figured out how much this is going to cost Whatever you think it costs to cut down a tree in your backyard, multiply it by 10. It is the most expensive. You've got to play the prices right. How much do you think it costs to cut down a tree? You have a huge tree and you need to remove it to build a patio. $2,500, $3,000. That's closer. I guess like, I'm like, so what is this going to be, like $500? Like, oh, no, I, I don't know. I cut down a tree in front of my house, I think. It's it a was. fortune. Thousands of dollars. They brought like, in a tree. Yeah, they picked up yeah. a tree over our house. Then they trim it. But you know what? They probably make even more money on the lumber these days. I had no uh, idea, but it's yeah. it's a racket, and I thought of leaving all of my jobs. Like I'm just going to get into the tree removal tree business. business. That's yeah. that's where the money really yeah. is. Ladies when the chassidim start, uh, yeah, you want that's where right. that's where it counts. <laughs> right, that's where that's, Rabbi Bender's been pushing everyone. Yeah, to, uh, go cut into down trees. Uh, go into to tree removal. Um, no, but we'll we'll talk about major purpose. Purchases, major projects in our house. When do you think we're going to be able to do it? I don't like spending down to the bone. I always like, and I don't mean just like in the checking account, like even our savings account. We could spend it down a little bit, but I want to make sure that we always have a nice cushion that we never feel like we're breathing out of a straw. Do you and your wife have joint accounts? When she gets paid and you get paid, does it go into the same account or you have separate bank accounts? My mother-in-law asks this question uh, constantly. Um, why, why does she ask it constantly? Is it because you're not giving her an answer or because you're changing it no, up? No, she's been through her own financial stuff and she's always concerned that Tova has the financial information, that's my uh, okay. name, that she needs. Uh, and I think it's, it's, it's smart and it's good. I have a, a sheet where Tova knows how to access all the accounts. Um, most of our houses in a joint name, but a lot of our deals and some of our accounts, our big savings account is a joint name. Mm-hmm. The account that we pay bills from is just in my name. There's not a big logic. I just carried over the Citibank account that I had earlier. Um, and her, it's for- in your name, but theoretically, 
she has access theoretically to that. of yeah. course yeah she has right, the right. passwords no there are some couples and some families and it works for them where they have completely separate bank accounts and they talk about oh who's going to pay this bill who's going to pay oh, that bill oh no 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 yeah, no okay. no 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 this okay. is joint we are together in everything that we do and you know we'll check with each other like you know she has a big, you know, the oven was a good example, right? Of like, I need, we needed a new oven before Pesach. It's not gonna, it's not gonna work with this. And you know, she told me how much it costs and this and that. I look at this, it's great. Go ahead and, and do it. She's not gonna just buy an oven without telling me, but she doesn't check in on me. Like, is it okay if I get the, you know, latte with a whipped cream on top? Gotcha. You know, it's it's a larger purchase. Yeah. In terms of having conversations with children, that's a big topic here. In terms of creating financial literacy allowances. Um, do you have conversations related to that? How many kids do you have? I have two children. I My children are a little bit young. I have conversations with my children about work and about why I work and why, especially during corona, when they see that you're present and that you are not available, I explain to them uh, why, why do we need to work in a very sweet way? But I never want them to feel like my responsibility or who I am to them is a job or a job title. Like I, that's death to me. Like mm-hmm. that's never how my children should look at me. It's never how my children should see me. And we are uh, fairly transparent. You know, I believe in being transparent with your kids. I don't think you should frighten them. You don't need to make it like heavy, but you can saying this is not something that we're going to buy for you and being honest with your kids is, is so, so wonderful. I I also come from a family with a great deal of economic diversity. Mm -hmm. So I think it trains you to be able to have different conversations and my financial education to my children is exposing them to different lifestyles. I think that the best education you can give children and the really best way to discover your own financial happiness is hanging out with people with different financial means. I think there are pe- like we've become like segregated based on our financial means. My siblings, I have some siblings who are very very wealthy. I have some siblings who are you know not so wealthy or very not wealthy. I, I don't know how I describe them as living in poverty, but yeah, they, 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 it's very difficult for them financially. And I am proud of the fact that I come from a financially diverse family because we each are able to share our struggles and our difficulties, and everybody has them. We're able to remind ourselves that it's not a one to one ratio with how much every dollar you have and the happiness that you have Mm -hmm. but you need to be able to see that you need to be able to remind yourself of that it's not just going to happen naturally where you just you know oh you heard about a wealthy person who's miserable so you could pat yourself on the back that that's not healthy either you're still competing Mm -hmm. that's making you happy Mm. i think what you need to do is the air that you the financial healthy air that you breathe has to be diverse you have to have couple friends, you have to have family members who you see, they have different financial positions. The moment you look around and the only rooms that you're in is everybody's in the same financial space, that is not healthy, whether it's everybody's wealthy or everybody's in poverty. One of the beauties of the Jewish community that you're afforded is to have financial diversity in your relationships and your friendships. And if you raise your kids in that environment, that is the best financial education you can give to kids, even more than filling out tax returns and this and that. Different people have different things. And there are, there are different roads to happiness. In terms of closing remarks, something you want to leave people with a thought when it comes to money. 
And we've we've shot this podcast, and people have reached out and said, I don't know why something like this didn't exist sooner. We have to start, you know, mental health. We've come a long way in in removing the stigma associated with it. We have to remove the stigma as it relates to money. We have to talk about it more. And some people say, Ellie, why are you doing this? You're not going to change anything. But I think dialogue is good. Dialogue can lead to changes somewhere down the line. And the amount of people that have reached out that said they've gotten life insurance because of that life insurance episode, people that have upped the amount of life insurance because they didn't realize that it was inadequate, people that um, have met with Stacy over at Achiezer after our budgeting episode, they never knew that they needed to have a budget or they didn't know our numbers. Um, the amount of requests she's gotten to meet with people have been wild. Um, tuition, people who may not have been able to afford tuition but were just sending money, now that they have a budget, can go over to these um, committees and say, hey, here's my actual budget. Can you give me some sort of break? It started with dialogue. It's leading to some sort of action change. So we're obviously doing something good here, right? What would you say to the audience that is very interested in practical advice? They don't want, you know, we've done some episodes where they were a little bit more holistic or... Is this one of those episodes? This no, is I think, more hol- holistic. No, no, I think this was a bit of both. Do you want me to open up I, my Ameritrade account? <laughs> no, no, no. This was, tip? this was practical. I think it's going to be a crowd favorite because there's a certain um, barrier that went down here. People don't talk the way you spoke about money here. People don't talk about that and I think it was also insightful and holistic. Um, we just reviewed the episode on the episode. I love that. <laughs> Well, yes, yes. We don't need an outro, Yaakov. This is it. This is done. Uh, follow us on YouTube. Uh, but you have a podcast yourself. What should people be tuning into? Tell us about that. Oh, 1840. Uh, 1840, where we explore different topics um, of difficulty, of interest, of controversy, where as it relates to Jewish life and Jewish thought, you can check us out also wherever uh, podcasts Why 1840? Are What's 1840? 1840 was the year that in the Zohar, it said Mashiach was going to come. It actually relates to finances, where they thought that Mashiach was going to come, and it was actually the beginning of modernity, the Industrial Revolution began. And different segments of the Jewish community looked at the prediction of the Zohar, which said that it's the end of the 6th century of the 6th millennia, which turned out to be 1840. Where where was the redemption? Mm -hmm. So some looked at it as the redemption was delayed because of technology. You know, it was the cell phones that destroyed uh, having any spiritual freedom. Other people looked at modernity and the Industrial Revolution. That is the Mashiach. Technology will save us, mm-hmm. financial. And there was a school of Hasidic thought known as Ishbitz who said that the opportunities and the options that industrialization and modernity are going to be afford is going to give us new spiritual opportunities. And that is why we called it 1840, because I think we're in a very similar moment in 2020, where we have so many more options than we ever had because of all of the technology, all of this. But the question is, like my friend Moshi said, what do you do with the options? Mm. And and that's really what we try to explore with a different topic every month. Do you have guests on to discuss that topic, or it's you? No, we talking. do have guests. And yeah, who are some of the guests that you've had? We've had Rev. Aaron Lopiansky. We've had... Um, we, we, we've had episodes where we have p- 
parents and children with very different religious uh, personalities, very different religious life, talking about their struggle with people who have overcome loss, drug addiction. Uh, it depends what topic we're exploring, but we've had you know scholars, rabbeim, just regular folk uh, talking about different struggles that relates to Jewish life and thought. And you also have a website related to it, right? 1840.org? 1840.org. 1-8-F-O-R-T-Y.org. And on there, people can find what? People can find recommended articles, videos, book recommendations for every different topic that we do, because we do basically a topic a month. We talk about teens going uh, going off the derech, but we, we actually talk to people who like who left. What, mm. what, what happened? What went wrong? Um, we're not afraid of that controversy and that grittiness, and hopefully uh, we'll be exploring money as well. That's awesome. So... Hit up his podcast, follow Apple Podcasts, uh, Spotify. Yeah, no, he has nothing. He said everything he has. It took about 54 minutes and he's done. Yeah, closing remarks. What do you got? Something private. Um, I want to recommend uh, a book. Can I recommend the yeah, book? Yeah, go ahead. We did three books already. The index, two books already. The index card, Stumbling Upon Happiness. I really like, there's a book by John Cassidy called How Markets Fail. Uh, which is an introduction to how economic systems work and is a great primer to understanding the financial universe that we all live in. It's a really worthwhile read to get an in-depth understanding of why sometimes everything seems to be soaring and why sometimes everything seems to be falling apart. I also want to link to the six pieces you spoke about. From uh, the Chazanish. Yeah, from Absolutely. the Chazanish. I I'll feel like I can you. find it online as well. Yeah. Um, I think people would be interested in hearing that. That's one of the things where... I've never heard of this before, but... It's Hanhagas Leben Torah. I believe it's in the first volume of Kovitz Igris Chazon Ish, and I believe it's either the 20th or 21st letter. Six Hanhagas. Amazing. David Beshevkin, thank you so much for coming down, and uh, looking forward to speaking to you again soon. My absolute pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of Kosher Money. We love you. If you're new here, did you know we had a YouTube channel? Yep. Search Living L'Chaim on YouTube. Subscribe. We're coming up on a thousand subscribers. We're getting over a dozen thousand. I don't even know if that's a thing, dozen thousand, but listens and views across all the platforms. Subscribe. We're getting more and more feedback via WhatsApp. So if you have WhatsApp and you're Jewish, so everyone, 914-222-5513, 914-222-5513. That gets sent to straight to the Living L'Chaim headquarters where we ignore everything. No, send it in. We take feedback. I was actually looking at uh, one of the emails we received a couple of months ago. Someone suggested we should have Dr. Tzvi Peratinsky. We had him on on the previous episode. So your feedback and suggestions, topics, criticism really matter. Send it in. We're on Apple Podcasts. If you have an iPhone, please, please, please give us a five-star review. Um, make it up. Um It doesn't even have to have any text in it. Just click five stars. Um, It helps us with the rankings. Um, We're on Spotify. If you have an Android, um, click follow. We're on Google Podcasts. We're on basically every platform. Living L'Chaim not just has kosher money. It has Spirit of the Song. If you're into music, check that out on YouTube and um, all the podcast platforms. Charlene Amanoff, the one, the only, she has a podcast now. It's called Not Your Typical Podcast, which was actually the name of Kosher Money before I decided to go with Kosher Money. I was like, not, no, that's her podcast. That was not the intended name. Um, she's great, really, really awesome. 
Um, send it to your mom, your cousins, your daughters. Um, lots more coming from the Living Machayim Network. I'm Ellie Langer. That's Yaakov Langer. Say hi. Hi. And we're out. The Kosher Money Podcast is hosted by Ellie Langer, run by Zevi Woolman, Ellie Langer, and myself, Yaakov Langer, and it is produced by Living Lachaim. For more awesome podcasts and shows, check out livinglachaim.com, check us up on YouTube, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Living Lachaim.